0: You are listening to Pods Law, a podcast presented by me, Julius Komarowski Advocate, member of Terra Firma Chambers. Hello and welcome to a general election edition of Pods Law, hosted by me, Julius Komarowski, and with today's guest, Carl Gardner. Now, we're recording our conversation over Skype on Saturday the 2nd of May 2015... And Carl Gardner is qualified as a barrister. Uh, Carl worked as a lawyer in a variety of government departments in fields including social security, health, pensions and tax. His fields of work included European Union law and human rights law. He's currently a law lecturer at the Open University and he blogs on his website, Head of Legal. So, Carl Gardner, welcome to the show. Hi, Julius. So... The topic I'd like to talk about today is, broadly speaking, the laws and conventions concerning the formation or dissolution of government and possible dissolving of parliament and how these might operate in the light of the imminent general election. Now, to put our discussion in context, I think it's probably best if I take a few moments to sketch out what we might be looking at after the results are in on Thursday, now, of course, the House of Commons has 650 MPs. The Speaker's neutral, doesn't vote. So, theoretically, a party could obtain a majority of all voting MPs by having 325 MPs elected. Now, that figure is perhaps a little bit artificial for two reasons. One is that Sinn Féin MPs don't take up their seats and therefore they don't vote and which means that you can probably knock two or three off that total I've just mentioned. On the other hand, the figure for the majority of MPs assumes all your MPs are able to vote. If you have government MPs away on foreign business or if you have an MP who's critically ill, then you might find it practically difficult to marshal all your MPs through the lobby for a critical vote. And so, to have a comfortable working majority, really you want a few more than a 325. So, looking at the website www.electionforecast.co.uk, it would seem that the Conservative Party are the party most likely to get the most MPs elected. However, it would seem that they are unlikely to get a majority of MPs, and so it seems probable that we'll have a hung parliament. So let's start with an easy example then. Uh, If on Friday it becomes clear that Labour has not only the most seats of any party, but they get a majority of MPs in the new Parliament. So, Carl, what happens next? What happens to David Cameron? Um, David Cameron would
1: simply resign very quickly on the Friday.
0: So we'd have a new government, new Prime Minister within a matter of hours... Let's make it more complicated now. Let's assume, and of course if the Tories did get an overall majority, David Cameron would simply stay on and nothing particular would happen. But uh, let's assume that the Conservatives get the most seats, but that they do not get an overall majority. Let's say they get 300 MPs just for the sake of argument. What then happens?
1: Uh, well, if they had 300, uh, I, su- I suppose, then there's quite a good chance that the Liberal Democrats would have... Enough uh, to give them a majority together or at least get close enough to govern as a minority. And uh, uh, so you might well find that there were discussions between the Conservatives and the Liberal Democrats. As long as there's a real hope for Cameron that he can uh, put together a more majority or, or at least that, that he's the best person best placed person to, to put together a majority as long as he can genuinely believe that he's entitled to stay the ultimate test would be a queen's speech so um perfectly proper for him to speak to the liberal democrats uh, this is what ted heath tried to do in 1974 in what would be exactly the same situation and if they could reach a, a, a either a coalition agreement or a some other type of agreement and if that was approaching a majority it might well be that Cameron could attempt to put a Queen's speech through.
0: Now I've, pl- I've plucked the figure out the hour of 300. According to the election website the figure that the Tories are likely to get is somewhere in the region of 280 MPs. Um, even if you add in, at least according to current predictions, Uh, UKIP, the DUP and the Lib Dems, they would still fall short of a majority. Now, let's say those predictions are pretty accurate. What if uh, David Cameron realises that whether it's in the form of a coalition, whether it might be cabinet uh, seats shared between parties, or even if it's some form of agreement of a lesser nature, it seems clear that there's no possibility of an assured pact that he has any sense or a, a guarantee or an undertaking of that when he puts his Queen's speech in a, a couple or a few weeks' time that it will get passed. What's the position then?
1: I think, um, I think what, what misleads people here often is the thinking about a pact. It, 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 in a sense, that's a red herring. The question for Cameron is, would he be able to get a Queen's speech through? would he be able to muster a majority in the House? Now, that that could simply be... I mean, if he had a Queen's speech that said, you know, motherhood and apple pie uh, we're in favour of and we'll do nothing else, well, every MP might support that. So uh, it's not really a question of what pacts, it's a question of could he get support for... His overall policy, so he doesn't; wouldn't need pacts. But, but um, as soon as he got the sense this is not going to work, whatever I put to the house is going to be voted down. That's the moment when he's clearly lost his majority and must resign.
0: So, in your view, if it uh, if it was clear that the arithmetic just didn't work out, or talks had broken down, but he could entertain some not entirely fanciful hope that despite being a minority government there might not be the necessary will amongst the opposition parties in the house to vote him out or to oppose a queen's speech but if he he's entitled to essentially put the matter to the test and see if he can survive see how long he can continue as prime minister is that right
1: yeah, that's right. You know, in, the, in the numbers you've just been talking about, the likelihood of him attempting that would be very, very small. I think what happens in that situation is, is, is um, Cameron uh, you know, sits glumly with his advisers on the morning, uh, uh, perhaps into the afternoon of, of uh, Friday the 8th of May, realises that there's really no hope for him and resigns.
0: The discussion I've had with you so far is on the assumption that the Tories get the most MPs for any single party. But what we've been discussing just now as a matter of principle and convention, it wouldn't necessarily be different if Labour got more MPs than the Conservatives but still fo- fell short of the majority. The same logic, I, I think, would still apply. Is that right? Yes. And I think
1: people who say the number of seats don't matter a right, in a sense they matter politically <laughs> but um, constitutionally it doesn't matter at all the, the question is, does the Prime Minister have a majority it's not really a question of how many seats any other individual party has
0: and by majority we don't mean this in any technical uh, sense we just mean the practical ability to mass uh, enough votes to outnumber any votes against him on a crucial measure Right. That's right. So let's assume that the writings on the wall on Friday, or it becomes clear after a few days, Cameron resigns. What happens then? Uh, in this situation,
1: um, Ed Miliband would be appointed. I think uh, it's very clear constitutionally that, really, in any scenario that you can think of after this election, you know, on the numbers you've given. If David Cameron resigns at any moment, Ed Miliband will be appointed Prime Minister. It really is as simple as that. And and it, it, I think it usually is about... Um, it's usually within an hour that the new Prime Minister is appointed. It's just a question of how long it takes to organise cars back into Buckingham Palace. There's absolutely no possibility that there is a resignation and then the the vacancy is somehow vacant for a period. People sometimes wonder... Oh well, because Labour wouldn't have a majority of their own, but would with the SNP, is there some sense in which everybody has to wait for them to do a deal? It, it's it's a mistake because um, it, it it can't be reconciled with any historical precedent. It can't be reconciled with convention. It can't be reconciled with academic opinion on the constitution. Uh, if you if I've done some research on this, and uh, all the opinion and precedent I can find points to the fact that if as soon as Cameron is clear that he himself will have no majority, he resigns, and the main opposition leader is
0: appointed. You mentioned historical presidents what presidents do we have for a Prime Minister relinquishing office and a leader of a minority party without any formal coalition agreement in place being appointed in their stead?
1: Well, the most recent example is is February 1974, uh, when, uh, uh, following that general election, Ted Heath attempted to stay in power by doing a deal with the Liberals, as they were then, and failed... And on the Monday, I think it was, after the election, uh, Harold Wilson was appointed Prime Minister as a leader of a, a minority Labour government. Uh, we have the same thing in um, 1929, I think. Ramsay MacDonald was appointed uh, leader of a minority Labour administration. Following an election, the Conservatives had been beaten and, but couldn't muster a majority. Uh, 1924 was a... Good example because there was an election very late 1923 Stanley Baldwin was the conservative prime minister and uh, after that election he was, uh, had the biggest number of seats uh, and he felt he might be able to get a Queen's speech through so he attempted that but failed and when he did fail he resigned and the Labour leader Ramsay MacDonald was appointed leader of minority Labour administration
0: now, at the risk of pedantry, could we actually look at the formation of the current incumbent administration as an example of what you're describing? Gordon Brown resigns. And what was the state of play between the Lib Dems and the Tories at the point of his resignation?
1: Yeah, they hadn't completed the deal. You see, that this is, this is probably the reason why people have been misled into this, because I think, in the popular imagination, people think that Gordon Brown was hanging on in power. In 2010, after the election, in some some sort of limbo, and that um, he resigned, and David Cameron became prime minister because of a, a, a deal having been sealed with the Liberal Democrats, and that, that's quite a serious misreading of what happened. Or well, you may remember that the, the position after that election, Conservatives had more seats than a new party, but but not a majority, uh, but they did with the Liberal Democrats and. Uh, The Liberal Democrats spoke to the Conservatives first because that's what they promised to do, speak to the party with the most votes and most seats. But actually, talks were going on with Labour as well at the same time. And during all that time, Gordon Brown was trying very hard to make his own deal with the Liberal Democrats in other words, going back to what we, we began by discussing, Gordon Brown still felt there was a real possibility that he could uh, command the House and put a Queen speech forward.
0: So Gordon Brown, despite being the leader of the party that came second in terms of MPs, did stay on for a few days until it became clear that, one way or another, it wasn't going to be possible to... Maintain a viable premiership
1: That's right And that is actually the moment When he resigned On the Tuesday afternoon uh, he, he had uh, There'd been a couple of last minute Meetings with Labour And I, th- I think in a, a phone call or two Between him and Nick Clegg And it, it had become clear to him That no deal was going to happen Between the Liberal Democrats and Labour And that's the moment When it became, became clear to him that he should resign.
0: Now, we've talked about assuming that neither party gets a majority, David Cameron trying his luck and trying to continue as Prime Minister, alternatively Ed Miliband being given the opportunity to have a go without any formal guarantee of a majority of votes in the House of Commons. And I've used expressions such as the premiership being viable, or being able to command a majority, or command the confidence of the House. Let's talk a little bit as to what exactly that means. When do we have an indication that a government has collapsed? And to some extent, to the larger extent perhaps, this is simply a matter of convention, a matter of accumulated practice, adhered to as if it were binding rules. And we now have a little bit of legislation on this, but let's go through aspects of the Convention first. We've mentioned the Queen's speech a couple of times. If the government loses a Queen's speech, that is typically thought to be a matter of confidence. And, and do you think that's still the case? Um, yes, I do think it's a matter of confidence. I mean, if the, the whole concept of parliamentary
1: government, the idea that the government has a majority in Parliament and really has to have one, That whole idea, in that context of that whole idea, it makes perfect sense that the Queen's speech is a matter of confidence. And if it's not, then you wonder what's happened to parliamentary government, really. Because what you're saying is, you know, what the implication of that would be is that the government could have a national direction of policy that didn't have the approval of the House of Commons. I mean, it would be quite a radical change to our constitution.
0: So, so Queen's Speech covers matters of policy, one might say. Uh, let's deal with more basic things, the ability to pay your staff, buy things, in other words, to get a budget passed, to collect revenue and to spend it. That's regarded as a matter of confidence as well. And I think it is by most people, yeah. And you say by most people. If the government sought to get a budget passed, and it failed at the first attempt. Do you think that would be such an indication of a lack of confidence that it would be required to resign at that point?
1: Well, I think this this is the sort of debate you could have, and that's why I say most people. Because some people would say, Oh no, that's that's not so bad. Um you wouldn't have to resign, you could have another go. And I think the the, the classic example of something like this being Done was in the in the Scottish Parliament in, in 2009, when um, Alex Salmond's um, uh, they were a minority administration then, weren't they? I yes, think, they were. Yeah. Um, that didn't didn't get its budget through the the first time. He announced to the Scottish Parliament that after the first defeat, that he would regard a second defeat as a resigning matter. Uh, some people would say you should approach a budget in the same way in Westminster I've absolutely no doubt that the Scottish National Party would argue that whether it's correct is another matter if a second budget is a matter of confidence which the government has to resign over if it loses then why isn't the first budget a matter of confidence? Uh, so there's and we could have arguments about this because what people sometimes forget, we, we tend to think about votes of confidence, especially in a conversation like this, a rather legal one. We, we tend to think of them as what happens after a vote of confidence. Must someone resign? Actually, a lot of the politics are about what happens before. So, for instance, going back to Alex Salmon's situation, uh uh, he got his second budget through, in large part, I would suggest, because he had made it clear he was going to resign if he didn't get through. The, the thing that Alex Salmon did over his second budget, there's no real reason why a, a UK Prime Minister in Westminster shouldn't do the same thing before his first budget. Um, and I, I can I can imagine... In the kind of scenario that there's been a lot of discussion about during the election campaign of of the, the Scottish National Party wanting to influence a, a budget written by Ed Balls and, and perhaps arguing about numbers and so on, I can imagine a situation where a, a Labour minority Prime Minister announces to the House that if, if his budget is not passed in full, he and his government will resign.
0: So could you make the argument that... To a certain extent, we describe this we describe these as conventions as if they involve matters of principle, but to a large extent, it might be said this is simply a matter of practicality. A government ends up resigning over a budget simply because without the money it cannot function, and there's not necessarily any grander principle beyond that um
1: I think it's arguable, but i think I think there are dangers in th- this way of thinking. I can imagine in the next Parliament that there might be a big row about this between Labour and the uh, Scottish Nationalists, with the Scottish Nationalists essentially saying the government can just carry on until the lights go out, and and so we can keep voting it down, and Labour ought to negotiate with us. And and if, if Labour threatened to resign or did resign, Scottish Nationalists would... Characterise that, or could characterise that as a, you know, a pure voluntary decision to hand power to the Conservatives. You can sort of see the shape of this already forming in Scottish politics, and and of course Labour's counter complaint would be that by by voting the government down, the Scottish Nationalists had chosen to bring the Conservatives back. The reason why uh, 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 I think. Uh, Labour's view is correct and and, uh, and that the Scottish nationalist one would be wrong and why there really ought to be there really is a duty on the to resign uh, certainly at some point uh, before the lights go out is that if you follow the the idea that governments can just carry on well it applies to any government that principle would apply to any government and so even if you had, say, a majority Conservative government, you know that had a clear majority, but but something about it meant that it had lost support, even of its own backbenchers. Yes. Some disastrous foreign policy adventure, let's say something like Suez.
0: Yes. Yes. I mean, we were, we were oh, going there with the after the Norway debate during the Second World that War. That was the next example I was going to mention. Yes. So, yeah Um, have you
1: imagined something like that well according to this theory this sort of government can just keep carrying on can't it until the lights go out there's no constitutional duty on it to resign no matter how bad the defeat it might suffer in fact a a really very good example of this seeming obvious to someone was um uh, the behavior of alex salmon in 2009 I mean If the theory that you can keep going until the lights go off were correct, then he could have kept going in two thousand and nine until the lights went off but but he didn't um you know he okay, he didn't uh, propose a duty to resign the first time, but he did did the second time.
0: Let's take a brief canter through the fixed term Parliaments act what What function do votes of confidence have under that act?
1: Yeah, under that um, uh, the, that act removes the prime minister's unilateral uh, right to ask the queen for a dissolution of parliament and a, and a fresh election. And what it does is it, it, it creates a, a kind of two stage um, situation for for an early general election, whereby if there's a, a, a motion of no confidence against a government, in, in precise words, there's a specific set of statutory words that have to be passed. I think that that this House now has no confidence in Her Majesty's government. If a motion is passed in those precise terms, then um, a a clock starts ticking, essentially. 14 days start ticking, and and, um, unless the House um, passes a second motion, a kind of antidote motion, uh, in precise terms that this House... Has confidence in Her Majesty's Government, a positive vote of confidence. Unless it does that, then the bell rings after 14 days and, and there must be a general election.
0: One thing we should touch on briefly is that there's also provision for a vote by a two thirds majority of the House of Commons to bring about a dissolution of that House, albeit because of the nature of the thing that they would require. Substantial cooperation from the opposition, it would seem very unlikely such a vote would ever take place because usually an election is to one party's advantage or to the other. And if it's to the government's advantage, it won't be to the opposition's advantage or vice versa. Do you think that's fair to say? I think it is. I mean, I
1: think I've been thinking about this act quite a lot in the last few days. And I think there are circumstances in which you could imagine um, an agreed election. I think probably if, if, um, If there was a hung parliament and there was absolute stalemate about, you know, no one could muster a majority, Uh, no one could hope to get a Queen's speech through, I think in that sort of situation people might eventually look at each other across the House of Commons and think, you know, there's really nothing else we can do (laughs) but agree in fresh election. But I agree, probably... I, I, I don't expect it to happen either.
0: I mean, the, in the situation you've described, that that would almost be like taking a shortcut to avoiding the inevitable loss of a vote of confidence and the absence of a positive vote of confidence within the two-week uh, period that you've described. Um, the act silent on what happens to Her Majesty's government between the first vote and the end of the fourteen-day period. The convention would be, and surely still must be, that the Prime Minister would have to resign and the turn would go to the leader of the next largest party. Is that a fair assumption? Well, I think
1: now, uh, Julius, you've touched on the biggest question about this Act. And I, I think we... We don't know how politicians are going to um, work it if this is ever tested. And I think there's a good case for saying that the uh, constitutional duty to resign um, arising out of the traditional convention is still there and a prime minister ought to simply resign. It would be the, um, the new prime minister, the leader of the opposition, who would come in and have the 14 days Uh, Period in which he or she could attempt to form a new government. Others would argue something different that um, the Prime Minister has a chance to restore the government within that 14 days. The Prime Minister could come back, perhaps after some negotiations, and attempt to get his or her own clock stopping motion of confidence. Some people would certainly argue that. And I think, uh, going beyond that, some would argue, I think, that the Prime Minister need only resign if someone else had a deal proving that they were a majority. And it was only at that point that the Prime Minister would have a duty to resign. I think that's a wrong understanding. But I think some people would argue that on the analogy of a misunderstanding about the situation Following an election, finally, I, I, I think that I think that it's actually there are some people who might argue that the prime minister could simply choose to let the clock run down. That that would that would be constitutionally proper. So there are there are at least four arguments that you could make about what should happen in this situation.
0: Well, um, that's been. Excellent. Well, uh, Carl Gardner, thanks very much indeed. Uh, You can follow Carl Gardner on Twitter at Carl Gardner, that's C-A-R-L-G-A-R-D-N-E-R You can read his blog at www.headoflegal.com and you can listen to this and previous episodes of Pods Law on iTunes or through the podcast website on tinyurl.com slash P-O-D-S-L-A-W where you can find links to find out more about me, more about Carl as well. And if you wish, you can follow me, Julius Komarovsky, on Twitter at P-O-D-S-L-A-W. Thanks, Julius. You've been listening to Pods Law, a podcast presented by me, Julius Komarovsky, Advocate, member of Terra Firma Chambers.